Bronson Arroyo should be voted into the Reds Hall of Fame this year. I ask him what he thinks about that on today's Locked On Reds. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds with myself, Jeff Carr, and in a moment, Bronson Arroyo, Reds legend and one of my favorite players that ever got the chance to play for the Cincinnati Reds. Locked On Reds is part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thanks for making us your first listen. As always, we are free and available on all platforms. I'm your host, Jeff Carr. I am a lifelong fan, an addict of the Cincinnati Reds, and I've turned an addiction to this team into information for you. Coming up, always loved getting to watch Bronson Arroyo pitch, and the fact that he is on this year's Reds Hall of Fame ballot, it's a shoe-in for me. It's an easy vote. I already voted for him. I told you you should vote for him too, and I'm going to talk to him about what the Reds Hall of Fame means to him and what it would mean to be amongst the group of players that were in there. Plus, I also get his take on who he'd vote for other than himself. And we look at some interesting thoughts about uh, pitching Nick Lodolo, uh, Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, and what does it mean to Bronson Arroyo when I say, oh yeah, this guy over here, he's a top prospect. We have a lot to get into in today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's get going. All right, we have him here now. He's Bronson Arroyo. He is up for the vote for the Reds Hall of Fame. And Bronson, really, when you look at this, uh, my first question is, what does the Reds Hall of Fame mean to you? Well, I think uh, what it means to me probably is is that you played in a place long enough to, to, to have a home. I mean, that's you know, the, the, the real simple answer without, you know, any kind of accolades on the field is just the fact that, you know, a lot of major league players, especially this day and age, can get bounced around from team to team, depending on, you know, free agency or just the fact that, um, you know, your skill set doesn't quite line up with, with one organization for a long period of time. And I've seen a lot of great players never really have a true home, you know, play two or three years on a team and then get bounced to the next one and you start making those friendships in the city. Um, but for me, playing here for nine years, you know, getting to know everyone in the organization from top to bottom, making this home um, after retirement, you know, it, it it feels like a place that is when I go into the clubhouse, they treat me as if I'm still an active player. And, um, you know, you just get that warm, welcoming feeling. That really is what it, it, it is for me to be, to be even talking about the Hall of Fame for the Cincinnati Reds. What? was it look like like when you look back on your career especially on the on the reds part of it like what's kind of the first thing that comes to your mind about all of that the very first thing about my whole career is just how i got here it really was um you know the trade for willie mopena um you know i had cemented myself in into you know red sox nation in a way that i was being valued as a as a quality starter um, on that club as a pretty young guy and on a staff and i was looking forward to pitching there for three four five more years at a minimum and, um, you know, just got the carpet pulled out from underneath me by, you know, the Red Sox management and Theo Epstein at the time, he pulled the trigger on that trade. And, and, uh, you know, the Red Sox were in town last night. I went down to the ballpark and we're having a conversation with some of the guys down there about it. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's always a bit of a mystery, like where they kind of, um, where was the thought process as far as like how you made that one-on-one trade, you know, it must've been that they thought Willie Moe was going to hit 40 homers every year. And so, 
Um, but, you know, that's the very first thing that comes to my mind is like how I got here. Um, and then, you know, from there, from there on, it was it was uh, kind of like a second life in the game in a way. It's funny you mentioned last night and to go off topic for just a minute, but what did you think of Joey going around the stands? I was trying, I was actually down there too. I was trying to see if I could run into him, but um, just funny seeing him kind of moving around and just being like, yeah, I'm just taking in a ball game. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't get to do that as players very often, right? We, we only see things from, from the perspective of the dugout and you, you're not really privy to a lot of things that go on in the game. I mean, just sitting up in the stands for myself the last few years, you know, get in to have a hot dog and eat some popcorn and, and, and have some ice cream at the end of the game or drink a beer and, and realize what it's like to be in the sun or out of the sun. And if it's cold or if it's hot and you know, how do you get into the stadium and get out of the stadium and is the traffic too bad tonight? And there's just so many parts of it that we, we have never experienced. We go into the ballpark early, we leave later than everyone else. And you're kind of like in this bubble and you know, that bubble is really, really cool, but it's also nice to see it from the outside. So seeing Joey kind of bounce around and you know, he's, He's realizing that we're all human, right? And biology is going to get all of us and, and you're going to have to retire at some point. And it's, it's, it's special to play in a place for a long period of time where people can value you longer than you've played the game or sometime after you've left the game, right? And Joey's got an opportunity to do that. So it's been nice for him to, to get out and see some people. So you said hot dog, beer, ice cream. You've been going on Tuesdays, haven't you? Well, I guess <laughs> when I go, they they know that the, that the all you can eat menu is going to get some damage put on. <laughs> That's awesome, man. We, going back to the Hall of Fame chat a little bit, the guys that are on this list, I I think you've played with all of them. I, you got a chance to play with Aaron Boone, didn't you? I did not. Okay, no, that was the Aaron, one guy. Aaron was, Aaron was gone by the time I got here. Um, when you look at those guys, if if you were voting, who would you vote for between Harang, uh, Aaron Boone? Coco Cordero and Scott Rowland. Yeah, in in my order, I've got I've got um, I've got Harang second, and I've got Coco Cordero um, probably third. You know, it just goes on based on bulk. You know, I don't think Scott was here really long enough. I, I always think of him as a as a Cardinal. I think of him as a true baseball Hall of Famer, right? In Cooperstown, I don't think of him as um, as a Red really. Um, you know, and and Harang put up you know a significant amount of wins for the team, you know, pushing probably around 80 wins for this ball club. And um, I feel like he was, you know, a solid guy for a long period of time on this, in this ball club. And I think Cordero, you know, put up many, many seasons of um, good relief appearances and many saves, you know, I don't know how that stacks up with guys who pitched in the old days, although, you know, in the old days, there wasn't relievers really being able to build that type of bulk. So he's kind of in in a lot of ways being compared um, just to the modern day closer, which is, is it much, you know, um, on the red side, we haven't had a lot of guys who've stuck here for a long time to put up a ton of saves. So, you know, I, that, that's the order I would go in. Um, you know, Aaron's numbers, I haven't really, uh, looked at, I, I don't know, um, how long Aaron was here and what kind of production he put up, you know, for, for me, it's, it's more about kind of that longevity more than just being a superstar for one or two years. Right. And I think that's the important thing is that when you're talking about, especially a team specific hall of fame is what that player did for that team. And kind of looking back on your career, not to butter your biscuit too much, but I think you're one of the top pitchers that we ever had here in Cincinnati. I, I'm curious, though, how how you kind of view yourself in the pantheon of pitching for the Reds franchise. Where do you think that you fall? Oh, wow. You know, I, I, I'm I've never been a great historian of the game. You know, I'm, I'm learning to value, you know, the things that go on in the Hall of Fame for the Reds. I mean, it's what a beautiful place. Right. I mean, every team in baseball envies the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. It is absolutely magical. And, you know, you really got to dig back into the old days to really see what guys did. But they also were pitching in the time when, 
you know, some of those guys got 45 starts in a season, right? And I was only given 32 most of the time. So, you know, as eras change, you know, things, um, you know, innings have come down, obviously, you know, I threw 200 innings almost 10 years in a row, but there's guys in the old days who were throwing, you know, 280 innings every year, right? Because they just got the ball in their hand a little bit more. So, you know, to stack up against the guys that have played here in the Cincinnati Reds, I'm not really sure where I land. I think, um, I think anybody who's given this team 100 wins is probably, um, you know, a pretty darn good benchmark. And there's probably, a, um, you know, at least a couple of handful of guys who have done it. But but I, I don't really know where I stack up against, you know, the Joe Nuxalls of the world and, and um, the Mario Sotos and, you know, Seaver and all, all the guys who played here because um, I, I haven't studied it enough. I, I always love like going back way back. I mean, you go into the forties, you got like Bucky Walters and Paul Derringer, and then you go way back to like noodles Han back then when it was like, he was pitching every other day. It was, it's crazy to see, which I kind of thought that they built the rotation between you and Harang around that way was that it was like, yeah, you guys are just going to pitch every other day. Right. Well, <laughs> but that's not really good. I tried. I tried. Gary Darren said he, he couldn't do it because he didn't think anybody else's arm was going to hold up, you know, right. In that 06 season, the reason I could pitch 240 innings that year was not only because was I getting deep in ball games, but I got 35 starts that year, just a few extra I pitched on three days rest twice, I believe. And I went into Jerry Naren's office. I remember we were in Milwaukee and it was right after Eric Milton got hurt again. And we just realized, you know, we were going to be, we were going to be dealing with guys like Elizardo Ramirez, who was a triple a guy who really wasn't um, you know, he wasn't ready for the big leagues at the time. And, and he, uh, you know, we were going to have to be shuffling these guys from AAA. And I just thought it'd be a better shot if you just went with a four-man rotation. So I asked him, you know, I went in his office. I said, hey, let's go four-man rotation, you know, me and Harang, and we'll just see what happens. And he he thought about it for a bit, but he basically said, I don't think anybody's arm is going to hold up except yours. So, and I, I, I don't agree with that. I think Aaron's would have as well at that time. You know, Aaron was always a healthy guy and pitched under control, and he was, you know, pretty free and easy. So I think we could have pulled it off, but – but, you know, you got to have some guts really to pull the trigger on something like that um, in this day and age, especially now, even more so. They're trying to almost go with a six man rotation half the time and, and limit guys to five innings. So, you know, it, it was um, it was fun to play under those circumstances, but I definitely didn't get the opportunity to pitch as much as I would have liked. Coming up, we change gears just a little bit because Bronson has a few thoughts about the young pitchers who are at the top of this rotation and why he is excited about them and why the confidence that Nick Lodolo continues to show in that breaking ball is extremely encouraging to him. That's all coming up here in just a moment. But first, remember when winning felt easy? That's because when you were younger, you were at the peak of your testosterone production. What some have called the winner's hormone or the man hormone. Wouldn't it be nice to get that winner's edge again and get your old swagger back in your step? Want more energy to counter the negative physical effects of aging? Nugenics Total T Testosterone Booster with Testafen will help you turn back the clock, re-energize your workouts, get you better results at the gym, and help you look and feel like the man you really want to be. Nugenics Total Tea contains man-boosting key ingredients like testafin. It has been validated in five clinical studies shown to boost free testosterone levels in men. Because Nugenics Total Tea boosts free testosterone that the aging process robs you of, you'll feel stronger, leaner, with more energy and drive, and more passion too. Your partner will notice the difference. Nugenics Total Tea is the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC. 
Now, get a complimentary bottle of Nugenix Total Tea when you text MLB to 231231. Text now and get a bottle of Nugenix Thermo, the most powerful fat incinerator ever, with key ingredients to help you get back into shape fast. Absolutely free. That's text uh, the letters MLB to 231231. Text MLB to 231231. Thanks again for making Lockdown Reds your first listen of the day. Coming up next week, Steve will have you covered on what's going on this week in between the Reds and the Brewers. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about with Michael Ciani's debut, the fact that he is up, what he could mean for this Cincinnati Reds lineup in the future. He's got a lot of defense, a lot of athleticism, but can he hit? That's what we're... I don't know that we're going to figure that out in the final 12 games of the season, but that's what we're going to be looking at and where he fits into next year's roster. But we will get back into the conversation between me and Bronson Arroyo as we look at this year's young pitching staff and the excitement that surrounds them. All right, looking back on this season, this has been... um, struggle, I guess is, is a word. Uh, they've got some work to do to avoid a hundred losses, some things like that. Uh, I know that you had gone through success and you had gone through some struggles of seasons when for team wide for the reds, uh, throughout your career and stuff like that. As you went through those differing seasons, how did you kind of keep up? Like, especially in the, the August and the September's of seasons where you're just like, man, we are not making it. How'd you kind of keep up that competitive drive? For me, it was just the fact that you were only going to get the ball 30 something times a year. Right. And and when you're when you're a starting pitcher, it's not like you you just you know, when you're a position player, you get to go for four today and no one really remembers your 0 for four yesterday unless you string together four or five days of that. And they start talking about it. But as a starting pitcher, you, you know, you're you're so much in the limelight and people will remember your starts a lot longer than they'll remember somebody's, you know, a few at bats. So, you know, just not wanting to be embarrassed, honestly, every fifth day. Um, you know, August, September, I also knew, you know, you're thinking about a new contract all the time. You're thinking about, you know, maybe I'm 11 and 10 right now with a four or five ERA. And if I can just win these last three or four games of the season, I can go 15 and 10 is a whole lot different than losing two or three of them and ended up 11 and 13. Right. And so, you know, I can remember being with Johnny Cueto and he would be exhausted in August in those early years, taking batting practice with the pitching group. And, you know, he would say something like, Bronson, I just want to go home. I can't wait to have a beer on the beach in Dominican. And I would have to try to convince him like, hey, man, you got like four starts left, five starts left. You can literally make or break your entire season right here, not for the team, but for yourself personally. And, you know, I, I always love pitching the second half of the season because I could see ty- guys were getting tired, mentally tired, not only physically, but mentally they had checked out of the game. And I loved that time more than any other time, to be honest with you. I loved going into stadiums knowing we weren't going to play in the playoffs and be like, I'm going to battle Albert Pujols in the, in the St. Louis Cardinals today, right? And and um, I always had good second halves of seasons. I think if I was, you know, a one-time All-Star, but I think if, if All-Stars were named in the second half of seasons, I think I would have had a handful because I always te- seemed to um, kind of thrive in the heat and in those times that they call the dog days of summer. You know, and that that really what it was for me was just wanting to go out there and kind of compete and and put up – numbers that I knew would last forever on the back of that baseball card. So with this pitching staff now, I mean, it's gone through some upheaval this year. They traded away Castillo. They traded away Malley. They traded away Sonny Gray before the season began. And so now we are moving toward the next generation. We have Nick Lodolo, uh, Hunter Green, and Graham Ashcraft. 
seeing those three guys pitch this season, who has impressed you the most? You know, I haven't seen the guys pitch all that much. I've probably seen each guy throw, you know, I'd say a total of about uh, 10 to 15 innings a piece. You know, I usually catch two or three innings. Sometimes I'm drifting away from the game a little bit. Um, you know, I think Lodolo is probably uh, because he's from the left side and he kind of slings it, right? He's kind of a bit Randy Johnson-ish, right, with a big breaking ball, kind of back foot a lot of righties. Um, you know, and he also can he, – he slings it from a lower arm slot. To me, feels like a little bit more of kind of a – I don't want to say out of control, but he's not out of control, but it just, it, it comes from a place that looks like he could be effectively wild. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I tend to think that um, his stuff's going to play really well, but honestly, all three guys, you know, I mean, Hunter obviously has, you know, amazing velocity and he's got an idea how to pitch and he's got good composure and Ashcraft with that, with the velocity of the sinker, you know, if you think about, you know, not many sinker balls left in the game, and guys who have command of that, I mean, he could be a guy who could run a lot of good numbers out there. I know if I talked to Sam LeCure, he said he loves Ashcraft, right? Of the three guys right now, I think it's kind of like, it's a bit of a toss-up, you know? It's hard to tell. When you're inside the locker room, if I shower with these guys every day, if I go out with them at night, if I know a little bit more about their personality, if I can see how they operate with their family or whatever it is and their teammates, it's like, it tells me things about them. And then I feel like I can maybe make that choice, but just observing from the outside, there's this whole layer of um, really unknown about these players, right? Because I only get to see them in the locker room once in a while. We say hi, we shake hands, but I don't really know them through and through, right? Because I'm not around them enough for them to kind of drop their mask and let me see who they really are. And that tells you a lot about competitive spirit. It tells you a lot about what a guy can do in the first inning at Yankee Stadium when he's down, you know, two to nothing in the first inning already, right? And those types of things is what allows you to pitch for a long period of time and build that bulk that we're talking about to work towards a Hall of Fame. And so right now it's, it'd be impossible to put your, your finger on who's going to do what. It's going to be interesting to watch these guys over the next three years. And what you hope for is that they all can solidify themselves as solid major league starters that can give you somewhere between 12 and 15 wins every year, make every start. And when you start putting two and three guys in a rotation who you feel that applied pressure to the opposition, it gives you a chance to make the playoffs. And until they can do that, you know, you're always working uphill. You're always going to be behind the eight ball and it's going to be very difficult to make the playoffs. Something that struck me about Nick Lodolo and you, you can watch it. You mentioned the back foot breaking ball. Like he throws that, that is his bread and butter. He absolutely loves that. And he has hit a couple of guys in that back foot. And he, he always points out, you know, there's been a couple of guys that I hit, but they swung first. So, Hey, that was a strike, but he really kind of doubles down on that pitch. And it's funny because there's different folks that always ask him the question, basically seeing if he's wavering on that pitch at all, but he constantly reaffirms. He's like, that's my pitch. That's what I'm going to do. Is that something when you see a guy and you're just what what do you make of that whenever you hear a guy like, okay, he has hit a few guys with it, but he's also had some success and he's just like, that's what I'm throwing, man. Here it comes. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think, you know, for the most part, if guys are gonna pitch on the inner half of the plate, right? If you're consistently pitching on the inner half of the plate, which he has done to, to the right-handed batters, he's beating them inside with the fastball and then playing off of that with the breaking ball on the back foot. It's an uncomfortable place to be as a pitcher for the most part. Mm-hmm. Pitching on the inner half of the plate is much more difficult than pitching to the outer half because you have the fear of hitting the guy. Not that you have fear of hitting him, but you have fear of of giving a guy a free base, right? So right. trying to throw strikes in a smaller gap, it's like a tighter window of driving a car in. And so if you're living on that side of the plate, it tells you you have a lot of confidence in what you feel like you can do in that tight 
little space, right? And anybody can pitch on the outer half all day long, but to stay in there tells you something about his command. It tells you something about how he feels about um, going into kind of the, the danger zone a little bit, right? And so that tells you that that he could probably do anything on the mound. It, it, me, it means that if you say to him, hey, we're getting beaten side right now. Why don't you move the ball to the outer half of the plate a little bit more? Let's try some different things. He can make that adjustment very quickly. If you ask a guy who always pitches on the outer half, which was kind of the way Aaron Harang was, and when they asked him to pitch on the inner half, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do it as comfortably, right? Because you start shifting back and thinking, oh, this is a danger zone. It's a little tight in there. I don't know if I can squeeze that in there, right? And so because he can do that comfortably, I feel like he is already where he needs to be um, to be a major league starter. Speaking of Nick Lodolo, there's an observation that I've I've made a couple of times on the show about him eat, sleep, and breathing nothing but pitching. I ask that to Bronson Arroyo because it has a key correlation for him. And I ask him what it means to Bronson when I say, yeah, this guy, he's a top prospect. Bronson's got an interesting thought about that. That's coming up here in just a moment. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Jeff Carr with three Fs. You can follow Steve at S. Offenbaker with two Fs. And you can follow the show at Locked On Reds. I thought of you the other day because he was doing a Q&A with uh, season ticket holders. And uh, a kid asked him what his favorite uh, song was, what his walk-up song would be or something like that. And he's like, honestly, I don't listen to music. Um, I just told him they play whatever song they want to play whenever I walk up and I'm just like, man, this guy just like eats, sleeps, breathes pitching, I guess. I don't know what on earth. <laughs> yeah, that's strange. That's strange. You know, I mean, it's not totally strange. I've run into a lot of guys, a lot of people, you know, that generally that music doesn't necessarily uh, play to, you know, I've, I've been in hotel rooms a lot in my career where I was playing the guitar late night for people that maybe you'd met at the bar or around the city or whatever. And sometimes you would, you would see some people where I, I called it where the music would just hit them and fall on the floor. Right. It never internally really gave them goosebumps or you they didn't feel it. And then I would say, oh, I just put the guitar down. Let's do something else. You know, it's not a big deal. But um, in the sports world, it seems like guys gravitate towards music because there's always some sort of preparation going on and some thinking. And if you're getting stretched or you're getting a good workout and you're running after your start, a lot of times music plays a big part in that. So I'm actually a little surprised that he's not a music guy at all. It, it definitely intrigued me, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how those guys grow. And, and he's, I mean, he had such a stretch up until his last start where he issued a couple of free passes. He had three straight starts with 31 Ks and no walks. Like I was like, good Lord, this guy. And, and it made me wonder, how do you make that transition from debuting in the major leagues to staying in the major leagues as a pitcher? You know, for the most part, it's the same story with everybody. It's about you get to the major leagues. Nobody really knows your name. No one cares to know your name. And if you get your butt kicked, they still don't know your name, right? right. If, if you start having success, then people start staring at you a little harder. They start putting you under a microscope. They start watching film on you, understanding the scouting report. How is he having success? Why is he beating right-handers up on the inner half? Is that the only way he goes about his business? When he gets in trouble, does he always go to his breaking ball? You know, you start putting you under the microscope a little bit, and then the league makes adjustments to you. As that league makes adjustments to you, you're going to have to make some back. And it's this constant back and forth. And the ability to do that time after time and year after year and start after start is what is going to allow a guy to stick stick or not stick, you know? And if you look obviously at the amount of guys that have played the game at, uh, you know, somewhere upwards of 21,000 players, you know, there's only been like a little over a thousand survived 10 years in the game, right? So, and that's just, that's any player. So now you take that to starting pitchers 
and maybe we're only talking about you know a few hundred guys and so you know it's it's something that's not easy to do because in a lot of ways you know we only have so many options to get a hitter out mm-hmm. and once you've played that hand enough times people know what you're going to do and so how do you continue to have success when people already know all your moves right and that's basically what you're working inside of and you know, the guys who are crafty and the guys who have the ability to make slight adjustments and cut the ball just a little bit and change my change up grip just so it gets a little more dip down instead of going inside or whatever it is. Those subtleties are what allows a guy to kind of really maximize and, and, and push that career out to a long period of time. It, it, it's kind of got thrown under the microscope. It was something that the Reds were talking about quite a bit between 2015 and 2020. And then now it's kind of back again. We're talking about prospects, 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 prospects. As somebody who's come up through the game, when someone says, oh, he's a top prospect, what does that mean to you? It just means to me that he's, he's got he's got a big skill set. That, that <laughs> That's really what it means, right? Because a lot of times guys who don't have big skill sets but put up numbers, right, they'll be like a pesky second baseman who hits 320 in the minor leagues every year, but he doesn't have a lot of pop. He's not very fast. Let's say he's the David Eckstein type of guy, right? Guy, yeah. He doesn't get any – he never gets the, the the prospect status, no matter what kind of numbers he puts up. And, and then when he gets to the big leagues, they, they continue not to call him a prospect until – he puts up three or four years of good numbers and you finally realize this guy is so good that he deserves to be on the team. And then you start t- say, telling everybody how crafty he is and how he, you know, plays small ball and can get the runner over. And, you he's know, a gritty guy. Yeah, he's a gritty guy. <laughs> there's all these reasons why we don't give, you know, non big, you know, big arms or big power why we don't give those guys that that status. But, you know, when they say a big prospect for me personally, it doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, there are a dime a dozen. I mean, every it's the new shiny toy. It means absolutely nothing. I mean, it's like being drafted in the first round. Right. I mean, yeah. When you put up minor league numbers, does that matter? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to put those types of numbers up at the big league level for a long period of time. Right. It's just a whole different animal. When, you, when, you're, when you're pitching against a triple-A ball club, the best hitter on that club in three-hole is probably going to hit in the seven or eight-hole on that, that big league team, right? So no matter how much success you've had at the minor league level, you're still going to be facing a lineup of guys that are all as good, if not better, than the best player on that one triple-A team. And so when you start mapping that over the, the whole season and also taking the, 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 the pitchers out, and now you're dealing with the DH, you've got nine guys to deal with that are just you know monsters at the plate, it's very difficult to survive for a long period of time, which, you know, the game has has shown over the history of it. And so it uh, when you when you say top prospect, I think, hey, this guy's got probably a great arm or he's got good power. He's got a good skill set. But let's see if he can hone it and use it in a way that can help the ball club and stick at the big league level for a long period of time. That's going to do it for us here today on the Lockdown Reds podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this special episode. Getting the chance to talk with Bronson Arroyo is one of my favorite things about having done this podcast for the last four years and very excited for more chances. Really hope he gets in. I, I think it's just elementary that he should absolutely be voted in to the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. And I think it's going to happen here in a few days. We'll see exactly how it all goes down. But that's going to do it for us here today. Thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. If this is your first time, make sure that you're subscribed and you're following us on your favorite podcasting app. And make sure on YouTube you click the bell to get notified. That way uh, you'll see whenever we have a new premiere, when we go live, things like that are coming down the road. 
Now, go check out the Locked On MLB podcast. Sully's got you covered with league-wide news. He's got the biggest stories, and he injects his own humor into each and every one of those stories as well. The Locked On MLB podcast is just like Locked On Reds, free and available on all platforms. Looking forward to talking to everybody next week. I'll see each and every one of you soon because we're Locked On Reds every single day.